0: Okay, well, we are just past start time, so I guess I will kick us off, um, since you've gone into the expectant silence phase, which is always fun. Um, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Festival of Ideas. I hope you've enjoyed the festival so far and have tickets and plans to go to many other events as part of the festival. Um, if there are things that appeal to you that you haven't been able to get tickets to, then do remember you can always just sort of drop by and hope. Uh, it's a remarkably successful strategy. Um, uh, So, the session that we're about to start here is called Can Politics Keep Up With Technology? If that's not what you're expecting to be in, please leave now. Um, There are lectures going on up to both sides of us. Um, Other than that, um, thank you very much for coming. Um, And it gives me great pleasure to introduce um, our chair for the session, Julian Clover who is a producer and presenter at Cambridge 105 Radio. Um, And I believe he's gonna take it from here in terms of introducing the rest of the panel and hopefully the the bonus dog that we've got with us today. Uh, So without further ado, please welcome Julian. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. I feel my two worlds are going to somewhat collide uh, this afternoon. During the, uh, the, the first half of my day, I tend to write about technology, mostly the, the distribution of television technologies. So I always describe it to people as not what's on Netflix, but kind of how it gets there. And then in the afternoon, I turn into this radio presenter who interviews from time to time city councillors, local politicians and the like. So um, with our four panellists this afternoon, uh, the two are probably going to hit into each other uh, like a bus on into a car on the guided busway. Uh, right, uh, let's start off by introducing everybody to you. Right at the uh, very end here we have uh, Will Moy. Uh, Will is uh, the director of Full Fact. He's been so since 2010, uh, which takes us through three referendums, that many. Uh, the Leveson Inquiry, of course, into press standards. Uh, European Parliamentary, and, of course, uh, 2015 uh, general elections. And, uh, plus one uh, no, more this year. I was going to say, plus another one, and uh, who knows, another one to come. We'll, uh, we, we, might, we might find out. Uh, you have a friend with you as well. Um,
2: uh, Brett is down on my right. He won't be taking part in proceedings. He's a guide dog, so, but not mine.
1: <laughs> it's kind of like the old days when David Blunkett would appear on Question Time and his uh, dog would be parked under, uh, underneath the table. Uh, Nora... Ne lead- oh, I knew I was going to get this wrong. Ne lids on.
0: That's it.
1: Is that close? Thanks. Brilliant, That's thank nice. you. Um, uh, Nora is a visiting lectur- lecturer uh, for the LLM Privacy and Information Law module at King's College London and a senior research fellow at the University of Johannesburg's Faculty of Humanities, uh, previously an affiliated lecturer in law at the University of Cambridge, uh, alongside uh, her is Beth Singler, and uh, Beth is the research associate on the human identity in an age of nearly human machines project at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. As an anthropologist, she is exploring the implications of advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. Give us a couple of years, won't need me here doing this job. And finally, uh, next to me, George Zarkadakis, have I got that one right? Better, good. He is a systems engineer with a PhD in artificial intelligence as well as a novelist, playwright, essayist, science communicator and author of nonfiction. I always like people able to straddle between uh, between the two uh, uh, forms of writing. That's more than two forms of writing, but you know what I mean. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. Um, What I'm going to do is to start off by asking each of our panellists, just to set out their stall a little bit, bit, to tell tell us uh, about themselves, their area of research, and to contribute to our topic, Can Politics Keep Up With Technology? So uh, I will start with Will.
2: Thank you very much. Um, I should say I'm not an academic. I'm the least qualified person on this panel, but I have spent with my colleagues for the last seven years um, listening to what is being said in public life tracing it back to original sources, and helping people make up their own minds as to whether to trust it or not. Um, And that gives us, I think, an unparalleled evidence base into where misinformation comes from in public life um, and the systems that affect that, including the technological ones. But before we talk about us, Firstly, let me give you a hint. For those of you who are very busy, the answer to the question is no, politics is not keeping up with technology. If any of you have no further interest, this would be a good time to leave. Um, But we'd like to know a little bit more about you, I think. It would be helpful. Um, Your level of interest in politics and knowledge in politics and your level of interest in knowledge of technology. So may I ask this uh, standard question? How interested would you say you are in politics? The options are very interested, interested, fairly interested and not at all interested. Could you put your hands up if you are not at all interested in politics? Could you put your hands up if you are fairly interested in politics? I'm thinking maybe 5% of people. Uh, If you are interested in politics? And what about very interested? That's about half of people. Okay. Okay. For context, only about 17% of the general public would say they are very interested in politics. Another 36% would say they are interested in politics. That splits dramatically between white people and black and minority ethnic people, 56% to 34%. Between AB social economic group and DE social economic group, 85% to 31%. So it's worth remembering just how unusual an audience this is. Politics affects everybody, but the people who have this conversation usually don't reflect everybody, and if we're having this conversation, it's so important to remember that the typical experience of technology is by and large not the one that is represented in this room. Um, Can I also ask, out of curiosity, how many of you would feel confident to define machine learning? Okay, about 20% of the room. How many of you have written computer programs? Okay, about half a room. So that gives us a sense of the kind of conversations we can have. Um, One last question. What would you say is your main source of news about what is going on in the UK today? Would you say it's television? Hands up. Um, Five hands in the room, maybe? Uh, Newspapers, you know, shaven trees, those ones. um, About 20%, maybe. Uh, The internet, almost overwhelming. Anyone for radio? A few. Magazines. I think some people double counting, possibly. Um, If you ask the general public, two-thirds of people say, say their main source of news about what's going on in the UK is television. We, again, are not a representative audience. It's also a really important insight because it suggests that although we know that is changing and the younger generation has a completely different experience from the population generally, let alone the oldest people, there is a window of opportunity to recognise what is changing and do something about it. And I hope what we can discuss today will throw some light on what is changing and what the options for doing things about it are. So with that, let me talk about full fact and the fact-checking work we do and the spread of information. But let me start with the observation that the fact that politics is not keeping up with technology is not surprising. You can go all the way back to the licensing of the printing press or to the little uh, men with red flags walking in front of horseless carriages to recognize that politics has never really kept up with technology. That's an extraordinarily big thing to ask. So how do you catch up with technology might be a better question. Fact-checking has been sort of in the news lately, um, not least thanks to uh, the US president um, and others. Um, And I think a lot of people think of fact-checking as people checking whether people are saying things that are true or not and going to the rest of the world and telling them. I'd like you to imagine how that would work at a party. Let's say you went to a particularly bad party and everyone talked about politics all evening and somebody arrived late to the party and said, I have a PhD in what you're talking about and you're all wrong. Would you imagine that people would be grateful for that? (laughs) No. And yet that is how most people imagine fact-checking works. And in in many ways, that's the origin of fact-checking. In the US, where it was first conceived, an organisation called factcheck.org set out to do just that. And after the 2008 election, Obama-McCain, they did a big survey to find out that people were wildly misled about all kinds of important topics. And they concluded, there's a blog post they did, which is brilliant, called Our Disinformed Electorate, except that it concluded, were we discouraged? No, we're going to keep doing what we're doing because it might have been worse without us. Now that was about the time Full Fact was getting started and we thought, well, we are discouraged. What you're doing clearly doesn't work. So the question is what else can, can you do to make a difference to the spread of misinformation? And Full Factor is therefore what you might call a second-generation fact-checking organisation. Not only do we check what people in positions of power say, which is a direct service to an audience of millions and through our media partner even more, is also a service because it holds people to acla- account for claims they make. And the number of times we have been told no one else has asked to see the source is remarkable. Full factor is doing an important thing simply asking questions of politicians, journalists, businesses, charities, you name it. But the third thing it does is it gives us a unique evidence base as to how information comes into public life and how it spreads. And we take that evidence base and we go and ask for corrections. So we've dealt with regulators from the press regulators right through to the statistics authority, the Advertising Standards Authority, and many more, asking for corrections and trying to get things corrected. And that, again, gives us an evidence base as to how standards processes work. And that takes us up to the third level of our work, which is working with policy makers and other opportunities to improve the systems of public life to talk about actually how does misinformation come into our public life and what can we do about it. So this week I gave evidence to the House of Lords Select Committee on Political Polling and Digital Media, which is grappling with some of these questions, and I met with the Committee for Standards in Public Life, which is also grappling with some of these questions. We work very closely with the Office for National Statistics trying to improve the quality of information they give out and how effectively they communicate it to the general public and other people. So the role of fact-checking isn't just about the direct journalistic service of giving people information with which to make up their own minds about complex issues which are often presented as simple. It's also about understanding how information flows. And that brings me on to what I would call the third generation of fact-checking. Clearly, clearly something has changed in the last couple of years. It's possible to massively overestimate how much has changed. It's very hard to maintain a historical perspective on how likely people were to be wrong a generation ago. But, I mean, just for a second, none of us surely thinks that pub conversations from a generation ago were notably better informed than social media conversations are now. Um, So there's a need to be a bit realistic about what has changed. But one thing that has changed is that everybody is a publisher now. It is possible for anyone to command a mass audience in a way that simply wasn't possible before. And so one of the most important fact-checks we did during the election this year was actually of a viral image generated by one activist in all honesty about public spending at the beginning of a Conservative period in government and public spending at the end. And it was kind of quite badly wrong in places, but not because he has not tried to get it right, but because he hadn't found the right sources and they hadn't been clear enough to use. But that, I think, reached millions of people. It's one person's lone individual efforts. So that's one side of it. We're all publishers now. And we can't surely think that the answer to that is to regulate publishing any more than we ought to have thought that back in the days of John Milton. So the question is, how much does that matter? Um, then, of course, there's the massively changing channels through which information flow about which I'm sure we'll hear more. We have the internet platforms, which are not gatekept in the way that newspaper front pages were, but are nonetheless gatekept through algorithms and through social interactions. And that's a new type of interaction that we don't really have a good conceptual framework for discussing. I think policymakers are really struggling to grapple with, and I hope um, some of my colleagues on the panel will say more about that. Um, what are we doing to tackle that? Well, Full Fact is developing the first generation of automated fact-checking tools. They're aiming to do two things. One is to, stop, to spot people repeating claims that we have previously fact-checked, identify that in real time, and be able to respond in real time to get them corrected. So we, for example, have had um, people make mistakes on Newsnight, um, which we spotted during the 2015 election when we were monitoring 18 hours a day, and had that corrected in broadcast in the same program by Newsnight. Now, that requires an extraordinarily, extraordinary level of human effort, but actually a lot of that effort is automatable. So if you came to our office on Wednesday when we are doing Prime Minister's Questions, you would see a screen with the subtitles to uh, what is being said in real time flashing up and our fact checks automatically being identified as that screen goes by. That's very early stage technology, but it's potentially quite powerful. The next step of that is to let the computer automatically check certain types of claims. So not everything can be checked, and as any technologist in this room knows, artificial intelligence is wildly over-promised. But there are categories of claims which are um, in much more predictable in form. So claims about what's happening to statistics, what's happening to the crime levels, the size of the economy, inflation, you name it. Those are actually made in fairly predictable ways, and it's possible to think realistically about teaching a computer to automatically identify them and to automatically check them. And I know that's realistic because we have that working in our systems now, and we aim to put it out and give it to journalists to test within 12 months. So that's the kind of thing we're working on to meet the challenge of taking fact-checking to internet scale. This is a very shallow canter for a very deep subject, but I hope that's enough to provoke some interesting questions. The one thing I'd like to end on is, in my conversations with policymakers around this, the thing that makes me most nervous is our failure to identify what problems we should be trying to solve. I'd like you all to ask yourself, is the idea that most people might be, have, be uh, misinformed about things, a problem that the state should seek to intervene in? Is it a problem that legislation should seek to solve? And if so, in what circumstances do you think that is true? Because there is some very, very dangerous territory here that you can tread into very, very easily.
1: Thank you very much. Well, a number of questions which stem from that, but I think I might save those till we've gone through the panellists. However, um, your figure of two-thirds of people getting their information from television, so they say, is that changing over time Wild,
2: Wildly, and I'm sure... Does it go up
1: and, up and down or dramatically down? Which, um, which,
2: which so reaction? what we're witnessing is the slow decline of television. Um, so I think... Now, this is all from memory. If you want the primary source, it's the Ofcom News Consumption Survey, Um, so go and have a look. I think, sort of, if you went back 10, maybe 20 years, you'd be thinking about in the 80s for TV as the absolutely dominant source of news. It was, I think, even a year or two ago, 70, and it's now down to two-thirds. So you're witnessing that as uh, an overall effect, and a big driver for that is the younger generation gets their news in completely different places. What sends a
1: shiver down my spine, I expect a lot of people in this room as well, is when somebody is I get all my news from Facebook. Yeah. And, well, yes, you probably are getting news, but it's what you're getting at the same time as well.
2: And it's really important to unpack that I get my news from Facebook because are you getting your news from the BBC via Facebook? Are you getting your news from the, your friends via Facebook? Those are actually very different phenomena. And this is why I think the what is now a well-traveled debate about is Facebook a publisher or a platform might just be fitting old conceptual categories to a new thing where we actually need a different conceptual category that can break down some of those different types of things in, in a more sophisticated way. But I think there are people who've done more work on that area than I have here. So
1: yeah, we'll cause I say we'll come back to some of those points a little later. First I will ask Norva uh, Nora to say a few words. Excuse me. Just one thing. is there any way you can stop the slide? Because it is changing every five seconds <coughs> Do we, do we have an AV person who can keep the slides still for us change now anyway
3: okay well while we're dealing as we all do with these events with the te- the technical difficulties maybe we can get this sorted out in a second um, I just want to so I'm Noria Um I was based here at Cambridge. I'm now based at London at the Institute for Advanced Legal Studies. And just following on from a lot of what Will has just mentioned is the fact that, well, I was invited to come to speak here today to talk about conspiracy theories and how fake news is so easily disseminated now. And the fact of the matter is, is that following on again from Will, is that we, we all know in that respect that the current system of how that's being governed is very broken. Uh, people are very alarmed. Um, people consider it to be a crisis. And that is the situation in which we know we have a consensus. We have definitely have a consensus from policymakers. We seem to have a consensus as well from the public. But uh, since we're all here today, I mean, do people think that false news or fake news on the internet is alarming for them. Is there anyone here who doesn't think that? Okay, so, so all hands would, would be up that we think, this, we think this is a concern. And the tech industry as well, it took some time for them to come forward and agree to this, but now they have come forward, and the consistent line is that, yes, we need to do better. We need to do better in how we address this. So in terms of how we go forward now, that is is now the key question. How do we now address this? Um, That is the focus of a lot of what's happening in government right now. We have a new data Protection legislation that Parliament is currently reviewing at the House of Lords. There's a lot of conversations about fake news and the integrity of our news and how much we can rely on it. The bottom line in terms of fake news and conspiracies is that this is nothing new. We've had conspiracies and fake news from in memoriam. But what is very different now are two key factors. With the internet, that has been a game changer. The scale now is just completely unprecedented and the immediacy as well. And also the point that Will mentioned that now everyone is a publisher. And while everyone, yes, is effectively a publisher, There are certain institutions that have much greater influence on what you see and what you receive than others, and a lot of the very giant tech companies which effectively have a lot of monopolies in these areas, particularly social media companies, hold considerable influence over everything that we see and the information that we share. So another major factor as well is the way in which the Internet now operates in terms of its commercial space. And while it was first envisaged to be this very utopian space where we would have more open ideas and much more accessible public discourse, because of the profit model that a lot of companies, that most companies now have on the internet, we effectively have what Shoshana Zuboff at Harvard has called surveillance capitalism. And effectively, this is the fact that while you don't pay, financially speaking, You pay for your attention, that's how you pay. This is the attention economy, and that underpins so much of what we see on the internet and the news and the information that we receive and share. And what has become very insidious about this system is that it's tailored for you, tailored specifically for me. This is our personalized news channel. What you see on Facebook and what I see on Facebook in terms of our news feeds are very, very different. And this is a major problem in terms of opening up public discourse, because if what you see is different and what I see is different, how do we have a shared open conversation about this? If it's false, how do we counter it? So because of this ads model, this is another aspect too for industries like Facebook, I'm saying Facebook a lot, but they really are a huge focus in this uh, debate right now in terms of the influential role that they've played particularly in certain elections. But certainly for, for Facebook, the way in which their system operates is by advertisements. And it doesn't matter whether they're advertising very cute dogs or other places where you can share photographs or places of travel or news stories even, but more significantly, political messages. They're all treated the same. They're treated neutrally in terms of the algorithms that are used, for example. And this is a major issue for transparency and accountability, because is that the way political messages should be treated? And this is a major question now for policymakers. Should we have this offline and online equivalency in how we treat these messages? But we clearly know that there is a problem in the fact that people are receiving dark ads, for example, in terms of very false information. And that is something that has to be addressed. And in terms of the effect that has on public discourse, while you had that previous utopian idea of the internet being this very public, open space for disseminating and sharing ideas, <coughs> excuse me, this bastion for freedom of expression and freedom of speech, now we have what we all refer to as echo chambers. And why do we have echo chambers? It's because... Ultimately, the aim of a lot of these platforms and online spaces is to keep you online, keep you online by including you in groups and communities where you share the same ideas. And for very extreme groups, that's quite a problem in terms of peripheration of very extremist views. It also excludes any minority views as well, or you being exposed to them. And this is a major problem in terms of opening up public discourse, and it's quite insidious as well. So in terms of what we can do, we really need to be asking very hard questions, and there are no simple answers here, as Will mentioned, you know, what type of approach should we take in terms of self-regulation, or should legislators be involved, and what do we as the public, what, what should we be doing, and what should the role of academia be as well? So in terms of the technology approach, what can algorithms do? Well, algorithms are built by people. They're built by systems, they're built by corporations. So in terms of how you build them, Frank Frank, Frank Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, excuse me, has this global community of two billion people. So that's wonderful. What are the values of this community, Mark? In terms of these algorithms, If we take anything away from today you know are we approaching these algorithms as a society for corporations as democracy by design is that what they're thinking of are they taking that into consideration the other issue here as well with algorithms is that there is a lot of secrecy around algorithms and how they operate because there's a lot of money behind (laughs) how certain algorithms work for google for facebook and there's this tension then between Academics and policymakers wanting access to how these operate so we can see the societal impact, and companies saying, Well, this is proprietary, you know, we have to keep these walls up for our own property interests. So we need to really find a balance there and how we reconcile that. And one argument that's been put forward has been the fact that, well, we can do it through self regulation. They could be information fiduciaries, for example, so they could take the duty upon themselves to open up these algorithms more. And we could incentivize that, for example, by greater tax cuts, for example, letting them know that you know this is what the public wants. The public wants to know that you're taking democracy ser- seriously, you're taking freedom of expression seriously. The other avenue is self-regulation, which is what we've had so far since 2016. And one example of this has been fact-checking. But fact-checking after the fact. So if you have a story that looks quite dubious, like Hillary Clinton, for example, being accused of being a paedophile, for example, and a, number of, a sufficient number of people su- report that to Facebook, Facebook then takes that complaint, takes that information, and sends it then on to other fact-checkers. ABC News, for example, is one. There's no remuneration for this. They review it. They go back to Facebook and say, there is a question here over the source of this information. What happens then? Then it's flagged. It's flagged, and the note is that this cannot be trusted in terms of its source, but it's still there. Even though we doubt the accuracy of this, the reliability, it's still up on Facebook. And there's been quite a bit of research done by academics in the US showing that this is having very little impact for people in terms of fact-checking, because of another massive problem we have, which is the loss of trust in institutions. So again, this is, by far not the perfect solution. If
2: I may jump in there, it's worth saying that scheme is not running in the UK. I think Facebook have it running in the US, France and Germany.
3: Yes. And then in terms of regulation, and again, Will brought this up, how do we categorise platforms now? How do we treat them in terms of their legal roles and their legal responsibilities? And one of the key focuses right now has been, do we... Count them as publishers. Is that how we should be treating them? And in terms, of being tre- in terms of them being treated as publishers, we're stepping back then and saying, OK, you're no longer intermediary platforms. You're no, just, you're no longer neutral conduits of information. There are other obligations that are going to have to come with this. And all this comes down to freedom of expression because we want to ensure that we have a democracy for freedom of expression, freedom of speech, open discourse... But there are two elements as well to that, because does this mean, when we think of it in an offline context, that you would start saying to somebody, you know, you need to have a more diverse source of news. If you always buy the Guardian newspaper, we're gonna stop that happening because it needs to be much more diverse. So there are major issues here of censorship, for example, as to how exactly that's going to operate in practice. And as Will mentioned too, In terms of the debates of this happening within policy-making circles, there is so much division as to what the next step is to take forward. So, For Ofcom example, recently their chair, Dame Hodgson, said in a personal capacity that she thinks they should be classified as publishers, but then you had the chief executive of Ofcom saying, I don't think this is such a good idea. We've got major issues here about censorship that we haven't considered. And we really need to consider whether regulation is actually the most appropriate step forward or the most legitimate or will be the most effective. And then also in terms of the public, we also have a responsibility too, and academic institutions have a responsibility as well, in terms of education and raising awareness. And this is why events like this today are so significant, because we need to hear from the public in terms of what they're concerned about. And every institution needs to be getting involved in these conversations. So this is why at the Institute for Advanced Legal Studies where I'm based now, our annual conference this year is on children and digital rights, because a huge focus now should be on digital education and thinking critically and looking at information we receive and thinking to ourselves, can I trust this? And if I have questions about how I'm going to trust this, who do I want in charge of that system? And how comfortable will I be and how reliant will I be on that? So I'm really looking forward to hearing what everyone has to say on this afterwards as well. Thank
1: you. Thanks very much, Nora. I, I, I'm wondering, you mentioned the idea of know, legislation is, is quite uh, the right way. Maybe we, we should say guidance or something rather than uh, uh, imposing something on people too too harshly. But we don't need Ofcom really to look at this. We need an international overseeing body to make sure that it's the same rules in every country. Do you do you hear of anything that uh, might put such a, an idea in place, even if only at a very beginning?
3: So it's it's a really, really good question, Julian, because the point that's always made is that a lot of the main platforms that we all use, they're global entities, and effectively, if they're going to have a set of rules imposed upon them, they want those rules to be the same the world over. But... A lot of this comes back to how we all view freedom of expression and our privacy and these are really sensitive rights in terms of having a pluralistic society every jurisdiction has a different approach and if you want to look where a lot of problems have come up in that respect look at the right to be forgotten where we try to regulate into an area freedom of expression and you have so many commentators and legislators in the U.S. saying this is a complete encroachment on freedom of expression you know this threatens so many people with censorship in terms of the responsibilities now that you're putting on companies to regulate the stories that should be taken down, for example, that aren't necessarily even false. So while there has been some discussion about the fact that wouldn't it be fantastic if we could have some kind of international convention on that, it will be incredibly difficult to do.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Now, our only PowerPoint uh, (laughs) comes. Yes. PowerPoints are good. and. uh,
4: That's Beth is going to deliver that for us. As as an anthropologist, um, I examine how people perceive technology and in particular artificial intelligence and robotics. So it's very hard to talk about that without illustrations from the spaces that I have looked at these discussions and conversations. So forgive me, there will be memes, there will be GIFs. I now feel like in this company that I am the joker of the pack. But uh, (laughs) um, I think it is important to, to pay attention to the grassroots level of public engagement with technology. And I think as an audience, you are perhaps uh, more informs, you've already expressed uh, an awareness of machine learning, you think you could probably define it, some of you are programmers. On the whole, that's not necessarily the case in the public. And some of the narratives that I look at around AI and robotics that are relevant to politics are more on the extreme ends of not really understanding how that technology works. So, uh, for example, this picture here, none, almost none of the images in my PowerPoint presentation are from myself. They've been created by other people. But this is one of the ways in which uh, the demonstration of the connection between politics and robotics might be imagined. Another. Um, if you're familiar, that's Robbie the Robots from uh, Lost in Space. But if you notice as well, his, uh, his politicians near him, they're all connected up in some way. They are not really free, independent human beings. This is a dystopian future imagery of politics and robotics together. Um, this meme... <laughs> I am am the joker in the pack. Uh, I do think memes are important. There is a reason why they spread virally, uh, why they have impact, why they keep repeating. Those of you in the know know that this started with actually uh, a comment about our insect overlords from The Simpsons. It was a new story about an invasion by giant ants. But it has been reworked for our robot overlords. And I do see this repeating again and again. Um, And it recognises one particular understanding of the interaction between AI and politics. Now, a lot of my work, another blessing in my life, is that I can pay attention to science fiction. And I think some of these ideas repeat again and again in popular science fiction forms. They don't necessarily only have their origin there, but they have a lot of impact. And quite frequently when I talk about ideas about regulation for robots in particular, people bring up Asimov, um, as though the three laws of robotics would be the quickest shortcut to sorting all our problems and we'd be fine. No, the answer, quite simply. Uh, Asimov created the three laws of robotics as a plot point. They conflict with each other, they cause stories. And in particular, I want to draw attention to two stories, The Evitable Conflict and Evidence. Uh, In The Evitable Conflict, the robot mind's controlling city states have developed a zeroth law, the fourth law of robotics in a sense, but it precedes the primary first law. Uh, that protects humanity over the individual. And the robotic minds that can control city-states and great countries can decide to cause harm to particular individuals in order that humanity as a whole can succeed. And basically, Asimov setting up a situation where robots can control society and bring about a utopian form in a utilitarian um way. or ethos, and he went on to write the Foundation series and other books that also dealt with this. And Evidence as well. Um, This is a short story where Dr. Susan Calvin, his favourite robo-psychologist, tests uh, a politician for his adherence to the three laws of robotics because the suspicion is that he's secretly a robot. I won't give away the ending, but he probably was. But these kinds of paranoid ideas about artificial intelligence and robotics, dating back to the 1950s, are still there as undercurrents. Science fiction is still hugely influential. Uh, I'm involved with a project at the Centre for Future Intelligence called Narratives of AI, and part of that is asking the question, what do AI researchers read? And a lot of them read a lot of science fiction, so you have this iterative effect. But in the real world, we also see that there is perhaps an assumption that artificial intelligence might do a better job than current politicians, this is only one in four and this is UK consumers in a small sample size. But this is still another influential idea that somehow a synthetic way of coming up with rational conclusions might be the better way to go. We also have this downside that has been talked about a little bit already, the, the idea that there are uh, artificial agents on social media spreading particular narratives and tropes and stories for political ends. So this detail comes from the Oxford Internet Institute, uh, advocated by the Future of Advocacy Group, that um, one in eight tweets about British politics are coming from chatbots or bots. And that's a big concern. And we've probably, again, not my own image, someone's created this, but the chatbot army of Donald Trump. The belief that um, a botnet army originating perhaps in Russia um, has been used to amplify Trump's narratives and increase the possibility of people voting for him and his agenda. And the linked story of Cambridge Analytica where they may have used machine learning systems to show users on social media Relevant stories to encourage them to vote, to encourage them to think in particular ways, to enhance the echo chamber that we've already mentioned, um, pushing the less inclined to vote into action towards a specific agenda. Now, these echo chambers were based on your social media posts, but how about AI trained to recognize your affiliations from other data, such as your features? Uh, Michael Kaczynski, the Stanford University professor who has already created an AI that can allegedly detect whether people are gay or straight based on their features and photos on dating sites, is involved in work to identify political affiliations as well as IQ and the likelihood of criminality, all based on physical features. Now, to my mind, this reeks of phrenology. And phrenology was tied up at the time with some very dangerous thoughts about race, about origin, about social demographics, and this seems to be a concerning area for technology to be moving into in correlation with politics. Although, with the greater data sets that we're able to feed into machine learning systems, more and more people are accepting that this might be an actual correlation, the amount of data that is supporting it. And even if it isn't, again, that bias towards synthetic agents as being more rational appears as well. And then think about Asimov's short story, Evidence, again. Dr. Susan Calvin investigates whether a politician is really a robot in disguise. Not a transformer, unfortunately. But uh, that the only way to find out, really, given his hugely impressive synthetic human-like form, is to test him with the three laws of robotics and see if he will or will not break them. And then that uh, example of subterfuge actually is starting to play out in the real world. I have some examples here of how machine learning has been used to lip sync um, original footage with new content. So, on your left, you can see the original footage of George Bush and uh, the uh, researcher, then fitting what he's doing with his face and mouth into Bush's face and mouth and therefore being able to push words into uh, a recognisable figure. And the same on the bottom as well. Obama on the left, original, and Obama on the right, lip-synced to someone else's speech. And this is all done with machine learning algorithms to the extent that you wouldn't necessarily... The uncanny valley there is not very strong. You don't immediately know which one is the faked lip-sync president, I had to point out. So this is a concern, of course. So is it surprising, really, that Putin recently said that whoever leads an AI will rule the world? He's not necessarily speaking in terms of Asimov's big city-wide robot minds that can control all our organizations and all the ways in which we interact with each other, but actually there are more insidious, weak AI solutions to political problems. And countries such as China are really investing in the AI uh, advancements that could bring about this greater political power. So the question, and we've had the answer to this already and I do agree, uh, can politics keep up with technology? Well, with regards to AI, I would say likely not. Mostly because the underlying ethos of advancements in AI are about accelerationism. Uh, I don't know if people here may be familiar with Moore's Law, the suggestion that processing power doubles over a period of time, leading to an exponential curve of growth of power of intellect. Um, some people in the AI field link this to intelligence, and then you get sort of the idea of Nick Bostrom's superintelligence argument, that ultimately this exponential curve takes us to beyond human-level equivalent intelligence to something that we don't really understand. Now, that that's sort of a prophetic statement, but it is partially an underlying ethos for some AI work. This idea that everything should be getting better, faster, and quicker, um, leading onwards to some sort of technological singularity that will, in some descriptions, be blissful utopianism, and in other descriptions be dystopianism. But either way, that speeding up, that understanding... sorry Someone's not a fan of the singularity down there. Uh, (laughs) Either way, this this speeding up of technology, this idea that things must get better, faster, and quicker, means that politics, which uh, relies on some older substrates of agreements and uh, traditions and ways of doing things that haven't changed for a long time, might actually really struggle to deal with that kind of technological approach. on the more optimistic side, perhaps there are those who are working in AI ethics, and I'm linked to the Centre for the Future of Intelligence, which itself has links to the Future of Humanity Institute, the Future of Life Institute, organisations, research bodies that are focused on trying to ensure value alignment for artificial intelligence. Unfortunately, no-one's figured out how to ensure value alignment for humans yet, uh, but artificial intelligence may be our 2.0 attempt at trying to figure out how to do that. Um, I'm also, with being linked to the CF would be linked to the partnership on AI which some of you may be familiar with that was founded by some of the larger corporations like Microsoft and Facebook and Google where they are actively trying to express publicly their attempts towards ethical artificial intelligence. And my research is also about paying attention to discussions about AI. As an anthropologist, I'm watching you all the time. Um, Online, optimistic tweets can be found. I found a few just to to demonstrate this. So artificial intelligence may enable the removal of politics from decision-making and have better, more efficient distribution of resources. So again, this idea that synthetic agents might be more rational. Artificial intelligence eliminates moral corruption from all levels of politics. I'm not sure about that one. Uh, Tech is improving just as quickly as politics are deteriorating. I just hope the singularity happens before the nukes start flying. So there is various ways of approaching this connection between AI and politics. And I think we can see a a spectrum between the optimistic and the pessimistic. So in conclusion, I think we need to think very carefully about what kind of tasks AI is being used to complete and whether these tasks are the right ones for it. And the speed at which change is happening may leave behind slow-moving bodies like governments and politics itself. They need to think faster, so therefore some people have argued that the synthetic agent should be employed in that thinking process. And that's certainly up for discussion. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Beth. I I, I suspect I'm possibly in danger in falling into the trap of uh, thinking of all those sci-fi series I've I've seen over the years when I asked this question. Mm. uh, We go back 30 years, maybe a little little bit longer, and uh, the concern was that our enemies and those who conspire against us were going to be sending uh, nuclear weapons over. So the whole idea was to prevent them from coming and stop them if they're they're sent in our direction the same sort of people who are having those talks about then now need to think about uh, fighting off artificial intelligence from, well, I, I was about to say from ov- ov- overseas, wherever overseas might be, but equally within within our own midst?
4: Oh, well, well, certainly, but not necessarily in the sort of Terminator form of physical agents or weapons. I mean, drones are obviously a concern, but I think the greater concern for those looking at these, these, this area is, the more insidious agents of artificial intelligence involved in hacking procedures. And I know that there are very, various companies who are using artificial intelligence against those sorts of illegal hacks. But that so the sort of
1: thing like, uh, who was it now? It was the, uh, the, the teenager in the bedroom in Norwich who helped mm. take down talk talk, for example.
4: Yes, I mean, employing machine learning in that makes it exponentially more powerful and therefore harder to fight against.
1: Uh, right, uh, our final uh, speaker before we get into some, uh, uh, some questions, hopefully involving yourselves. Uh, George. Thank you very much.
5: By the way, I'm one of those scientists and engineers that, uh, in fact, read a lot of Asimov as a kid and uh, Philip Dick and ended up doing, uh, you know, engineering and PhD in artificial intelligence so i on, very much a victim of this iterative process, if you like. Now, there's a, some of you must certainly have seen uh, Blade Runner, the original film, right? So there's a scene there that I really really like, and I think is very relevant to our conversation. So it's Deckard in the, the C D bar in L A, trying to reach Rachel, the android, right? If you recall, and he goes to that uh, like a video phone, then you know gets some coins and sort of puts them in the video phone and, and, and makes the call, right? And I find this scene very interesting because you know you'd imagine like in in a future time where people are able to develop artificial humans, right, have that level of technology, they must have kind of like solved the problem of coins and, and, <laughs> and, and, and telephone calls at the same time. And I think that what the story demonstrates to me is that when we think about the future, we tend to kind of like, you know, zero in into a single sort of, or a number of very sort of uh, important disruptive technologies and imagine that the world be very much like it is today only this technology will create some kind of like issue or problem that the, pro- that the world must adapt to it. So, you know, this conversation about AI, so what are we going to do about AI? Sort of, you know, fake news, digital media, what are we going to do about uh, news? And we imagine the world like that. Now, I'd like to uh, suggest an, a different sort of framework of thinking, uh, this relationship between uh, politics and, and technology. And to do that, I'm going to uh, explore two uh, assumptions that we make in every conversation we have about this relationship between technology and politics. These assumptions are around the idea of scarcity and the idea of centralized institutions as opposed to decentralized institutions, right? So with regards to scarcity, now ever since we sort of you know, stopped being uh, nomadic uh, people and sort of settled uh, until today, scarcity has been part of our lives. Right, and all the politics and the economics we have are dealing with this thing called scarcity. Right, there's so many tomatoes; everybody wants to eat tomatoes. There's not enough tomatoes for everybody. We need to sort out who gets a tomato. All right, and depending on your political inclination, we can think of various ways of making that distribution. Right, uh, if you are sort of you know if you believe in free uh, market economics, that I do. For example, we do an auction. Okay, we auction the tomatoes. And uh, the people who have the money to, for, for the price that the tomatoes are auctioned get the tomatoes, and the rest get nothing, okay, sorry. You know, there's no tomatoes for you, okay? And that's the world we're living today. However, there are some technologies that are becoming more and more visible nowadays that can completely change this basic assumption that we make about our world and about how we deal with, with, with the idea of scarcity. How we distribute stuff and legislate and, 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 and do all the things that we take for granted that we do uh, as, as human beings living in organized societies and those technologies don't really have to do much with you know the conversation around digital media and AI. I'd like to redirect your attention to a, another sort of class of technology that I think are, are far more uh, important into changing this scarcity and becoming and transforming it into abundance.
6: Thank okay. you.
5: And those technologies are in the areas of energy and in the, energy, in, the, in the area of computing. So, imagine, for example, materials that we can use—very smart materials using nanotechnologies—that can create. We can have, like you know, near 100% efficiency in solar panels. We can have, uh, you know, similar efficiencies in batteries. What would that mean uh, for us when we have abundant energy? And another technology that is really advancing at pace is, is quantum computing. Uh, very much under the radar of most uh, media, uh, because AI sort of, you know, monopolises the attention right now. Uh, over the past few years, we have been, and we, you know, human beings, have been making strides in, in quantum computing, which is a technology that promises to uh, allow us to have infinite computing power. That means, you know, have infinite calculations in a very short amount of time with virtually zero energy. These two technologies, together, are, in fact, can enable a completely different sort of foundation of economics. They can enable abundance. Okay? So if we're thinking about the future and those technologies creating abundance, that means that everybody, you know, whether it's, you're an individual, a family, a, you know, a bunch of friends, a village, you can create anything you need, given you know, the materials that you have at your disposal and infinite computing power, then that, I think, creates a huge question about whether our current institutions, who are very much centralised, are fit for that future. You see, in a world of scarcity, to have centralised institutions makes perfect sense. Okay? You need centralised institutions. The bucket has to end somewhere, and someone has to t- take a decision, whether it's the king or uh, the parliament or, or whoever it is. Okay? Because somebody has to decide how many tomatoes will go to whom. Okay? But in a world of abundance, you don't need that. Okay? And we already see technologies such as blockchain and, and all kinds of things sort of you know, questioning this idea of centralised institutions. So in the world of abundance, centralized institutions uh, are not fit for purpose, and uh, we have to start thinking about decentralized institutions. Now, uh, why am I saying all that? Uh, hopefully, you know, to have some follow-up questions for you, but essentially to answer the, the main question of today's um, conversation: uh, Can politics sort of catch up with technology? My answer to that is: As long as scarcity remains as part of life, then the answer is probably yes. Uh, we'll have to tweak something, uh, we'll have to change something, we'll have to regulate or legislate or, or do something, you know, by tweaking, I think we can readjust our politics and our institutions to, to adapt to those technological challenges. And I think we already do, you know, with fact-checking and everything else. But if we transition into another sort of part of a of human story uh, where abundance replaces scarcity, then uh, we will need to completely rethink politics and completely rethink the way we, we
1: take decisions. Yeah. Thank you. I'm wondering if, if that means an extension of, you know, in, in the news at the moment, uh, Catalonia, of course, in, in, mm. in Spain, a, a regional uh, area which uh, wants to break away. We can all of us, uh, there's, there's plenty more uh, parts, uh, Scotland and so on and so forth. Does What you're saying here exacerbate that over over time, or are you thinking at an even more micro level?
5: Um, I'm I'm thinking beyond the now, to be honest. Although we can we can see that um, there are definitely political sort of tendencies in in countries for for independence, for going you
1: know, living in, in smaller
5: communities. Uh, and I th- but I think that's a result separate,
1: of separate the politics yeah. maybe from the the the, the economics which you, you highlighted there. Yeah, yeah.
5: But I think it has more to do with you know people feeling sort of comfortable that they can deal with with that. Uh, but that may be a fallacy, actually, in, in my opinion. Right. So, for example, I don't think Catalonia can make it on their own. and I don't think Scotland can make it on their own. Right. Not yet. Not in the world of scarcity.
1: I guess. I guess. I guess not. Right. Uh, we will do some questions. A few more. Things I'd like to raise here. Just, uh, um, we've got a couple of microphones. Where are they now? Oh, I see the movie now. I should have given them more warning. Here they come. If uh, you could raise your hand. We have quite a collection towards the front here. Uh, there's a lady right towards the top. As she's close, the microphone. We'll, we'll take that one first. We'll try and work our way to everybody else as well.
7: Um, I've got a question. on mo- Nowadays, it's about the whole fake news Tying in with social media. Nowadays, the whole of my class is on Snapchat, pretty much, except two of us. Um, And as I don't have it, because I'm not allowed it yet, because I'm not old enough. Um, <laughs> um, I get quite bad news, because by the time it's gone around all my friends on Snapchat, it's got changed from every kid in my class, so that's twenty of us, then back to me about two days later on email, it's really not reliable. Do you think a sensible idea would be to set up a platform for all kids that they were allowed to access during school time so they could see reliable news? Because quite often children don't look at the BBC News website, BBC News website for example, because it's they just think, Oh, it's an adult site. Do you think that would be a possibility for the future?
1: Are you like my niece, the youngest one in the class, which with me is why you can't get Snapchat? Or are there other reasons, like your parents, stopping you from doing it?
7: <laughs> uh, they just don't think, um, they just think there might be stuff on there I don't want to see yet.
1: I suspect they might be right, to be honest with you. But let's, let's see what the let see let's see what the uh, the, the panel thinks. Who, who wants to to start off on that?
2: Um, I'll, I'll take it on. Uh, that's a brilliant question, um, and you're not the only one. Um, and I sympathise with the not everything on there is is worth your time. Um, It's it's actually an example of something of which there are much bigger examples. So the growth of messaging um, services, uh, not not in the UK so much, but I think in India, for example, a closed messaging services with very, very large groups of people circulating information among themselves is becoming a really important way that news is circulated around the whole country. Um, And that's something that in parts of the Far East we're also seeing. And that raises real questions for how do you help people assess the accuracy of information they're seeing when you have no idea what they're seeing? And that, of course, is a problem that your parents have clearly thought about and reached one conclusion about, which is you're not seeing it yet. If the government were to reach that conclusion about everybody in the country, I'm not sure everybody would be quite so um, cooperative as you seem to be about that. Um, so you've given us an example of yet another technological challenge um, for which there is as yet um, no good or accepted answer.
1: I guess the sort of undercurrent of springs to my mind is that we have seen social media networks come, come and go, different age groups use... Different uh, things. I I, yeah. I always remember. I think it's about three or four years ago now. A um, some research that the Daily Telegraph did it into its uh, into its own organisation, and the conclusion was that all the journalists were on Twitter. Yeah. Unfortunately, all the readers were on Facebook, even within uh, even within the Telegraph. I
2: mentioned earlier. This, sorry. I mentioned earlier this week at one of the hearings. I was that in ten years' time we might not be dealing with Facebook and Twitter. And the, that whole idea, I think, Except really took my space. people by surprise. <laughs> um, but ten years ago, this would have been Alta Vista and Yahoo. We were having this conversation about. And although Facebook and Twitter are behemoths, one of the reasons not to think that their terms and conditions are the right place to answer this question is sooner or later, other companies operating in the same space will need to be brought into some broader conversation about what happens next.
3: That's if they're not bought up by Facebook yeah, which, or Google yeah. before by the they way, become in any way significant, which is what's Facebook currently happening. And Facebook
2: owns Snapchat, owns Instagram, so it kind of owns the next generation. Owns WhatsApp. And
3: WhatsApp, yeah. So just to follow on from that point, so I think that question is really excellent because it raises one of the main debates going on right now in terms of how we regulate information for children, and it's the fact that, well, not only do we have to be wary about the safety of what they can see, but also we need to make sure that they have access as well to use the internet for all the benefits that are on it. And striking that balance is really important. A question for you uh, in the audience: How old are you? Um, I'm
1: seven. So okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so how, how old are they?
3: You're eleven. Okay. So, really interestingly, um, under new legislation. Um, you will be able to consent to the use of Snapchat by the time you are 13 without having your parents consent. And I was just curious as to, as, <laughs> as, as to what you thought about that. You know, do you think 13 is a suitable age? It's really popular. I've heard that. I heard it's like <laughs> the, the phone directory of the internet now. All the old people are just on it.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, sorry, Julie? Yeah, go ahead. Me,
3: can I just ask just a quick question to the audience? So again, this is about us hearing what you have to think as well about these big questions. So I'm really curious to hear what everybody thinks about the age of consent being 13 in the UK from next May. Who, who's for,
8: Snapchat.
3: In, who, for, for, for Snapchat, for example, it will apply to social media like just, Snapchat. Just, not, for nothing else. We're not just talking on. Nothing else. Nothing else. Just to, just, data, just protection, <laughs> data protection. Data protection. Data who, protection. Who's happy about 13 being the age for consent for those type of platforms? Who's happy? I, I'm undecided, oh, so. I'm just way. curious. I've just a few hands, yeah. not that much. interesting. W- would people be happier if it was 16?
5: I
8: don't think the government should be the one who arbitrates
3: on it. You think it should, it should be, be up to the parents? Right. I wouldn't say that age has a whole lot to do with it. It's maturity level. And that is highly subjective. Ab- absolutely. absolutely. Very much so.
1: <laughs> Good point from the gentleman there. Let, let's move on quickly with another another question. Um there is a gentleman in the middle there. And there was a hand also get the one to the, the lady in the um light light blue as well. And whoever gets the microphone first can get the first question, then we'll follow up after that. There's a gentleman up there next. Have I won or has he won? You yeah, have you're you're here first. Yes. Right. Congratulations.
8: Um after Brexit and Trump, both of which were terrifying, I think, for everyone in the room. Um, we need to think about what the pressures are that are causing this, which is why we're all here. And I think it's a frame of reference question. It's not just how do we censor, what do we censor. I think we need not to think about can politics keep up with technology, but can government keep up with technology. And that old phrase, government of the people, by the people, for the people, has completely disappeared. And I, what we have instead is government of the people by special interest groups for special interest groups. And it's a question I've been thinking about for a couple of days what would happen if we just changed the structure entirely and eliminated party politics? And before everyone says, oh no, democracy will fall over, there are 14 nonpartisan democracies operating in states around the world right now. So it is possible.
1: George, you're you're from Greece, so let's uh, let, let's start start with you on uh, on, on that one.
5: I, I don't think this is an answer. I mean, I don't think that there exists an answer to that question. Things happen because they happen, and it's the people themselves or the circumstances that you know guide politics. Is not that, for example, you know, we can decide that you know from tomorrow, you know, there's not going to be any Tory or Labour. It's going to be I don't know party. Change the party politics. I don't think we can do that.
1: We can, just, we can do that at an election if uh, somebody with a particular yeah if if can't someone just comes in and changes the system because that exactly, requires exactly. A, I mean a people referendum. have to come
5: forward with ideas I guess right like people like us not from another planet and you know with a with a political platform that can resonate you know to the point you've just made which I happen to be a, to uh, to agree with right. And then you know, ask the voters. Given you know, this is a representative democracy. We have to react and vote for them, and then change will happen. But unless those things happen in that way, I, you know, it cannot happen in any other way.
2: I guess right? that's, that's what I'm saying.
1: I pick will on, on on this as, as, as well. Do you do you have a view?
2: I mean, I, I have a different perspective, I suppose, which is that before I became a fact checker, I worked for a non-party political member of the House of Lords. So I've seen the non-partisan part of our parliamentary system up close. And I spent three and a half years working for Lord Layo, as a crossbench, who was a crossbench, is a crossbench peer. Um, when I started, I, I didn't really see the value of the party system, um, and the downsides of it are very obvious. When you work closely in Parliament, you begin to understand um, just how difficult it is actually to achieve a majority in favour of any different proposition, and the value of the parties' play either in enabling government to secure a majority in order to do something or in, because the Lords is not, does not have a government majority built into it, unlike the Commons, or in enabling a blocking um, group to form against government policy. And if, you know, if you're taking a, a particular field, my, my boss um, was blind. Um, he uh, worked a lot on disability policy. There is no possibility that 600, whatever, 400 um, peers who might vote on a particular issue are all going to be experts on how bus policy relates to blind people. What they have to do is be willing to trust that somebody is going to make a decent argument about that and come to a conclusion. So the way the details of legislation, as opposed to the grand swathes of government policy, work in the House of Lords is you will have a lead for all of the political parties on a topic. A backbencher who's a real expert in that topic could go and talk to them and persuade them to bring their parties on board. And at that point, the government knows it will lose a vote on that. And that enables collective decision-making. Now, it's not to say that you can't do that in lots of other ways, too, but... I think it's quite hard to see the value of political parties until you see the difficulty of corralling 400 people into making decisions on such a wide range of detailed topics. So I think there's two sides to the story, and I, I, learned, I learned to respect the people who swallowed their tongue and played as part of a team in politics in a way that I didn't expect to, when I started working in that environment. Um, so I, I think there's two sides to it, but I... I suppose I'd, I'd flag for you. There's something called the jury team uh, was created a few elections ago, which was an attempt to get more sit down and shut up, um, um, an attempt to get more non-partisan candidates elected to the House of Commons. So there are efforts going on to do this in a democratic way. And um, you know, if you want to get involved, get involved. That's what democracy is about.
9: OK, now, gentlemen, uh, right at the top, there's been very patiently waiting. Um, just a real quick one, firstly, I've got Snapchat and I can say it is awful and your parents are so wise to have kept you away from that. Um, so my question is, I'm 17 um, and I really think I'm kind of the first generation that grew up with social media all through my childhood. I got Twitter when I was 12, um, deleted a couple of accounts, anyway. Um, my question is, I suppose, as a 12 year old, um, a lot of the people I knew, we all made terrible decisions and a lot of us put ridiculous things on the internet which has since to be deleted or whatever. But Surely there is a problem now where the politicians of tomorrow will have a whole back catalogue of photos posted to them by their friends that they have no control of. There'll be stuff on like old disused websites where they've got embarrassing information about them and so on and so forth. Will there not be a problem now? I mean, the Sun and the tabloid media would absolutely pounce on any sort of of those stories and those images that they can find. I know they have done with old uh, leaders in the past. Will we have a problem where no politician has this kind of clean slate and this kind of... Um, clear backlog and what influence what effect might that have on elections in the future and the way in which we think about our politicians as sort of these perfect flawless human beings yeah, so the future. No, pol- <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: no politician will sign up to join any club at oxford just in case right um maybe beth to, to start but on but this one
4: I, i'm really fascinated by the trump phenomenon everyone is at the moment but i think what's what to me is particularly interesting from someone who's who's done religious studies work f- before is how his base of evangelicals accepted so much about his past without it causing the dramatic problems everyone expected it to mm. and perhaps you're, you're absolutely right there, there will be less of this sense that people have come into politics completely shiny and clean but we should also be aware that our attitudes towards that lack of shininess is, are changing. Um, there's still obviously backlash. Um, we're seeing it. Me Too at the moment is a very strong movement, but again, you know, paying attention it's to the, where- Me Too is the
1: one which has come out of Harvey Weinstein. Yes, the, the
4: hashtag uh, Me Too uh, uh, movement, um, which I fully support. Uh, but I think paying attention to where, our moral developments are shifting and changing and what we are more or less willing to accept may make some of those problems less of a problem. That if there's a picture of you online having a, a massive Jägerbomb, you know, some people won't care if you're a politician in the future.
3: If anything, it may even enamour people to yeah. you that you have a more colourful lifestyle than the status quo. Those people with qualifications and experience, you know, yeah. they... They don't know they're not what of the
4: people. They're not
3: of the people. They're not of the people. They're not of the people. <laughs> you know, Hillary Clinton, she was just not fun enough, you yeah. know.
4: And we, we, we have seen there is a, a backlash against the elites, whoever they are. It's a nice little othering of people who've got sometimes academic qualifications and just say, you know, we don't want the elites to tell us what to do anymore. And that's not really been the situation. But it's a narrative that's been quite successful, particularly in Trump's campaign.
1: Do you think that might transfer into other other political parties uh, around the world, maybe in, in, in Britain for, for future elections in the way that we know that, yeah. uh, I think uh, Lyndon Crosby uh, came over from Australia, I think, I think it was, brought some Australian ideas, um, the opportunity for others uh, to, to do that again?
4: Absolutely. I think the ideal type of the politician is a flexible, fluid creature, and we can com- constantly redefine it, and then people try and fit themselves to that model
1: checking, um, gentlemen there,
10: and then we've got a couple of other questions uh, to move on to uh, that part of the room as well. And um, quite a quick one. And um, just to say, so Will brought up earlier on about this idea of us being quite an odd audience, and I wanted to sort of maybe touch on the idea that our, that our elected representatives are perhaps not part of this audience. If we, you know, uh, having worked in government and having worked in digital things, when you talk to a minister, they have absolutely no idea about what, this, what we're talking about here. You see the discussion about WhatsApp that goes through the news every sort of six months on repeat about you know, the idea of breaking encryption in the longer term. What I would ask the panel is um, how do we deal with the fact that the politicians are just like the general public and are as, equally, uh, as susceptible to short-termist thinking based on what they, what's put in front of them, rather than a long-termist solution to a, essentially an existential philosophical problem.
5: Yeah.
3: Mm. So what's I really... Sorry, <laughs> sorry just, just jump in. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And policymakers are completely inundated with all of the different issues that they have to handle, no matter what their remit is, whether it has anything to do with technology or anything to do with um, other areas of policy making. What then is very important is who they go to, who then has their attention and there are and you mentioned the point earlier on i mean there are certain groups that will always make sure that they make the time to have their attention and they will come to them with very compelling arguments and very compelling statistics but what we need to make sure is that there's a balanced conversation happening there which is also informed and i think academia has a very significant role to play there in being able to contribute to providing that knowledge and you do have you do have spaces in which that's happening for example whereby you know you have parliamentary select committees who are always asking for contributions from academia from other groups you know you have libraries within the house of commons where people are dedicated you know to these types of roles so there are a lot of support mechanisms there but arguably they're only as good as as well as they are supported from everyone who has expertise and a lot of the expertise that they receive you know they do come from special interest groups, so it 's very important that everyone, civil society, academics, the public, that everyone is contributing to those conversations and is having that influence.
5: Um, I have a, a bit of a i don't know contrarian idea here as well, uh, and uh, it comes from my own personal experience. I had some experience with the European Parliament, not with national parliament I was um, representing a, an intergovernmental uh, scientific organization at the European Parliament, and um, I was involved in elucidating uh, the euroMPs MPs on aspects of molecular biology and why uh, the European Union should invest X amount of billion dollars in a certain sort of uh, uh, program of advancing uh, biological science. And um, my sort of conclusion, the bottom line is this. Uh, there are uh, processes and procedures within the European Parliament, and I guess in every Parliament, where you have bring in experts and there's a dialogue and the idea is to, you know, for, for the Euro MPs to understand what they're voting for, right? You don't have to be an expert. You can learn enough from experts to be able to understand what you need to do. I don't think, however, that this is the real problem we have here. I think the problem we have in uh, the uh, sort of liberal democracy world is the uh, election cycle. You know, this is a real problem. And if I compare that, for instance, with uh, with China, where I happen to increasingly understand how, the, uh, how they make strategies, for example, on quantum computing that I mentioned before, or, or AI, how they take decisions for those key technologies in the long term, right, uh, we're at a, a severe disadvantage here, you see. Uh, there seems to be a, a dilemma, right, which is a terrible dilemma, uh, obviously, right? Do we... Uh, you know, Do we retain our democratic institutions and fall behind or, or not? I think that's a, I don't have an answer to that, right? But I can see the dilemma surfacing every time. You know, decisions have to be taken for something that needs long-term strategy.
3: Or we have a five-year election term that no one can derogate from.
1: The alleged fixed-term Parliament Act.
3: Yes, that no one can derogate from. <laughs> that's the important caveat there.
1: Uh, Will,
2: um, Firstly, I think we should be very, very careful not to wish politics and politicians out of our lives, and it's something I see from techies all the time. Politics is what happens when two people look at the same set of facts and reach different conclusions because they have different priorities, different principles, different appetites for risks, different experiences. You can't get that out of human experience, and we need to be really careful to recognize the value of decisions which are anchored in more than just technical and expert conversations. But Although, yes, uh, although earlier I was um, decrying the ability of politics to keep up with technological change sort of ever in history, there is a good example of where it's been done well recently, um, which is the Human Fertilization and Embryology um, Act, which has stood the test of time really quite surprisingly well. That act was based on a big report done by the philosopher Mary Warnock, Baroness Warnock, And she created in that report the set of kind of conceptual categories that people could use to actually have a serious discussion about where to go next. I think we are badly missing the Warnock report of where technology is taking us, and we need somebody to do the intellectual legwork to give us a shared set of concepts to have arguments about, and I would really, really like to see... A select committee, a Royal Commission, I don't care what, but some smart people go away and sit in a room for a while and give us not the answers but the framework to debate what the answers are.
3: So the only thing I would say about a House Select Committee is that they're often quite short on time. Yeah. And they're often tasked with many other things. Yeah. So I completely agree with you. I think we need to have long-term thinking, but we also need to have a dedicated body looking at yeah. these questions that can immediately inform government and can be that point of contact. To and there fair, was,
2: Warnock was a Royal Commission. It was, it was exactly what you're describing.
3: So the, um, there was a recently a report on data governance by the um, British Academy and Royal Society. And one of the key recommendations they made was to establish a board like this, called a Stewardship Board. And this would be the role that they would have; that they would be established and would provide that long-term thinking and be, and be that point of contact. Right. So.
1: I'm starting to keep my eye on the clock here. There's a quite a few questions around the gentleman there with the microphone, and get to the next microphone. To, I think the gentleman up there, and I know there's some others down here, but you go first, sir.
8: Actually, thank you very much. This segues very nicely into my question. Um, my question first depends on an assumption, <clears throat> and I'd like to identify the assumption before I ask the question. Assuming that an effective functioning democracy depends on the participating electorate being informed, how do you think technologically enabled or facilitated disinformation and deception will impact the concept and, and process of democracy itself?
5: Yeah, yeah.
8: Ooh,
1: start with Nova, I think. <laughs> <laughs> We keep the answers quick, I'm conscious of trying to get in as many, okay. Uh, many okay. questions. Okay. Okay. So as you we can. can't
3: have a can't have a very in-depth discussion about John Stuart Mill right now, but um, I think it's 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 a very important question in that I mean, particularly for example, when you know we think about um, data and the role that we give people there. So, for example, consent is one straightforward example. You know. This has been lawfully done because we've asked for your consent. And of course, everybody, I'm sure everyone in this room, reads all of those terms and conditions before we accept any app or any service that we ever deal with. But the thing is, even if you had the time, which nobody does for that, would you even understand what you were reading? So there has to be an acknowledgement of those types of situations whereby not everyone is an expert on everything. And back to your point about should we you know get rid of party politics or think of a new form of democracy, a new form of governance,, you know, it's one of the reasons why we have governments, you know, because there is meant to be a level of expertise there. And we are not meant to be experts on everything. But this is why this is meant to be this pluralistic, joined up conversation. Like the burden shouldn't be on citizens completely. It's unrealistic to have that kind of assumption. And what we do need to acknowledge is that the expertise is being considered at that policy-making level.
8: I, I would draw a distinction between being an expert and being
2: informed, but okay. Uh, Will. Very quickly, I think that if your assumption holds, it's a question whether we've ever been a democracy. Misinformation is not new, and you know, the partisan press in this country... Um, if you read what the Leveson Inquiry found about accuracy in the press, you know he said that sections of the press were known to put their political agendas above their commitment to accuracy. It has been known, and so the idea of misinformation is new doesn't doesn't hold true. The idea that information is either good or bad definitely doesn't hold true, so the question is what is the quality of information that's necessary to make democracy work? And that could really do with some thinking. But the thing I think has changed is targeting of information. So it used to be that you could not reach an audience of millions of people without everyone else in the country noticing. The front page of a newspaper, a billboard, a TV, whatever. Um, now you can reach audiences of millions which are very, very highly targeted based on your demographics, your interests, your interests, who your friends are, where you live, whether you're male or female, and the other parts of the world don't see that happening. And that's what Nora meant when she referred earlier to dark advertising. Um, That is, I think, a fundamental threat to the notion of democracy, which is a shared conversation. And unpicking how you have such targeted mass communication and also shared decision-making is a hard thing to do. But I think political advertising should not be allowed to be done in the dark.
5: So, a yeah, very, very,
2: very, very, very you, quick very comment because I don't want
5: us to uh, sort of you know, fall into the trap that most economists do that uh, we assume humans are rational <laughs> and therefore, you know, given enough information and adequate information, they'll take the right decision. I think democracy is more about values and it's more about beliefs uh, rather than facts. You know, uh, you, know we can, you can talk about facts, you know, among scientists, you know, in sort of, you know, in that kind of environment, an academic environment, but, you know, try to have a conversation on the street about some stuff, and, and you'll see how democracy really functions, okay? And it, it, that, that's what I'm gonna say. So, so, you know, read behavioral economics, uh, you know, what's his name, Thaler, you know, and all the other, other stuff. I think there's a lot of insights into how people behave given, you know, the, the, the same information. What is just said, actually? It's, this is democracy, right? And perhaps, you know, it's, it's a matter of reframing the conversation, reframing the information, but infam- information by itself it just doesn't cut it.
4: And pe- people have beliefs about how informed they are already. So we're trying mm-hmm. to inform even more so when they already think they yeah. may already be And issues
5: of them. trust as well, which yes. you've mentioned before. right? You can inform me all you like, but if I don't trust you, then I don't believe you.
1: Right, mm. gentleman over here has been incredibly patient, so go ahead with your question, sir.
2: Um, every one of us in this room has a device right now government by the people through these devices is becoming increasingly technologically possible in real time if you fast forward a generation do you think the balance between direct democracy
6: perhaps including referenda and representative democracy shifts and do you think if it does do you think that's a good thing let's start with beth on this one
4: I have seen the argument that artificial intelligence in particular will lead us beyond the binary of referendum and bring us to a much more granulated understanding of what people want. I think that is opening the doors to a lot of noise and messiness that I'm not sure the AI researcher who proposed that actually understood that actually sometimes binaries can be helpful when it comes to to core questions. yeah, I th- I'm not sure I have a quick answer to that. I think that that is certainly looking at the exponential growth in um, data sharing and the kind of elements at which we're willing to give other people that the more and more information organizations have, they could be more targeted. That's certainly a very difficult question.
5: Right. Uh, you know how the ancient Greeks solved the problem with referenda? By allowing the people that did not agree with the decision to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and I okay. think unless you've got an exit clause in direct democracy, direct democracy doesn't work.
1: You might have just lost 78% of Cambridge on that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gentleman at the top and then the gentleman here. So
6: after My question was actually covered by the two previous questions, so I'll pass on. Okay, Thank
1: you very much. Then we'll go straight to the gentleman here.
6: Um, I've uh, had to... Uh, I've been researching for decades now a political system, the Argentine one, where Uh, politics, and political parties have been forbidden. Um, And uh, the articulation behind that is always authoritarian. It's almost platonic. platonic. But uh, the results are appalling um, when they operate. So don't wish something away uh, that uh, when it is dreadful, when it is banished, you notice an enormous uh, va- uh, vacuum. The other thing is politics. Um, I would, I'm, I'm grateful to the panel for the things that have been put forward. But at the same time, political systems and uh, political parties have updated themselves in an erratic, cumbersome way. But they have updated themselves. So it's good to know what the problem is. But to be anguished to the point to think that, well, uh, we're at the end of the world, no, uh, we're evolving. So thank you very much. We will grow. A good, a good, good thought.
1: Um, I think I've probably got time for one more question, if there is one. There. Lady there. There we go.
9: Hi, thank you. It's been really interesting this afternoon. Um, the premise of this uh, discussion was whether politics, I guess, can, can keep up, can catch up. And that's very reactionary. But you've given us one example of where, uh, it, with the Warnock Report, it can be proactive in determining things like regulation and keeping up with technology. Is there, Are there other ways it could be proactive? Um,
1: um, any thoughts on that? I, I guess, are there, are there other examples? other, other than the I what, don't know. I have a
2: secret wish to write a book on how politics is kept up with changing technology over the last five centuries because I think it would be absolutely fascinating. I just need a couple of spare decades to do it. (laughs) Um, Warnock is the example that stands out for me. I think the other place where you might see an analogy to something like the Beverage Report, which recognised a massive change in social conditions. And this is where Warnock is not a great analogy to the rise of the internet, because actually human fertilisation hasn't had the same level of social impact yet that it will have in future and that the internet already has had. Beveridge was responding to a a massive change in social conditions and kind of saying, OK, what is our direction of travel as a country In response to that and yeah I wonder if looking at that as an analog of where we are now in terms of a sheer level of social change and the different settlement that another generation will need is is worthwhile that said I'm not that familiar with it so that might be a wild goose chase but if somebody takes the time please let me know um, if I could quickly come back on the previous um, while I've got the the floor, as it were. Um, I think one of the real things that has changed dramatically in the last two generations as political party membership has declined is that people have been less, less, less and less closely connected to the trade-offs you have to make when you ultimately have a finite amount of money, time and effort. And in a political party, you are confronted with those trade-offs as part of a platform you're signing up to. What has become easier and easier now that we're able to do single issue politics in a different way is to support the single issue and not recognize that you have to make trade-offs in order to do that. And I think how you reconcile those two things would be part of the future of referenda or how legislation might be made in future. But I don't think it's as simple as, I'm in favor of this, therefore it's possible.
3: I think there are testing grounds in which it would be very interesting to see how politics and policy makers are going to keep up with very rapidly moving forward technologies now. And I think an area in which to consider that is smart cities, because I think that there are so many different opportunities there to better society, but there's also a major opportunity there for local governments in particular, because they're the ones who are going to be primarily tasked with managing these areas and these systems. To show how accountable and how open they can be, and there has been a lot of conversations happening about this across the world in terms of open platforms, where not only should you be informing your citizens and residents about how systems are working well. You know, this is how the TFL made your day easier today. This is how life is more convenient. Here's how much energy we've saved. Here's how we're improving the environment in the following in the following ways, but also that we now have an opportunity, because of all of these open platforms, to have more immediate feedback from the public as to how things can be improved. Or if there are issues in a city, for example, you know, if there's a particular light fixture you know, that's broken and that's a particularly dodgy area, so really the local county council should be looking into that immediately. So I think there definitely is scope for politics and for policymakers to keep up but that has to be made a policy priority as well. And if it's made a policy priority, it means that time and money are dedicated to those resources. And that is a key question, because it's one thing to have a lot of these promises, but it's very important to see you know, what is backing it up in terms of the people dedicated to it, the institutions dedicated to it, and the enforcement as well, and the oversight.
1: Okay, we have a probably Right on time, so it might be a good opportunity to, uh, to, to wrap up. Um, thank you all uh, very much. I, I feel a bit like the captain of an easyJet flight because I have to ask you to uh, uh, leave fairly quickly because there's a fast turnaround for the next uh, session. Um, but thank you all very much. Some excellent questions. I've got plenty here I could have asked, but you did a far better job.